All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the letter of Jude. In this recording, we're going to be looking at the large middle section of the letter, Jude 5 through 16. In verses 1 through 4, you have the typical greeting and salutations, and then you get a purpose statement for the letter. And the purpose statement is Jude is calling his original readers to contend earnestly for the faith, specifically against some who have sneaked into the church and who are telling people that God's grace means you can live however you want. So go ahead, indulge yourself. Well, to address this issue and to motivate his original readers to action, Jude now begins here in in verse 5, the body of the letter with a series of biblical examples which show God's judgment on unbelieving and disobedient persons. And so he's going to give three. The first example is the Israelites during the Exodus. Then he'll give the example of angels who sinned. And then he'll follow that up with an example of Sodom and Gomorrah. So in verse 5, we get the first of those three examples, the Israelites during the Exodus. Jude writes, Now, I want to remind you, though you know everything once and for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Notice the first line where he says, I want to remind you. So Jude is writing a reminder, something that he says they already know, though you know everything once and for all. There is some variation in the textual traditions here on this verse, but this reading, though you know everything once and for all, is the best attested. And the idea is that they are familiar with what Jude is going to say. So it's not new information. It's a strong reminder of an important biblical truth. And the example he gives here is the example of Israel and the Exodus. We should remember that story and call it to mind how God uh, redeemed and rescued Israel out of the land of Egypt. And he did so with miracles and power and he led them uh, by his own presence. And yet, when it was time for them to enter into the land of promise, the vast majority of those spies who went into the land and uh, did some reconnaissance work came back with a negative report, didn't believe they could actually enter into the land because there were giants in the land, and they did not trust God. And as a result, they had to live for 40 years as nomads in the desert until that unbelieving generation had died off. And that's the example that Jude really is calling to mind here. And notice the way Jude has worded it. He says that how the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, so notice that saved people, he destroyed those who didn't believe. And what Jude is wanting us to see is that being saved must be followed up with being faithful, continuing to believe and be loyal to And so we must continue to believe and live like it. That's the point of this example for his original readers and then by extension to us. Now, the next two verses is one sentence that includes the next two examples, the example of the angels who sinned and the example of Sodom and Gomorrah, all put together in one long verse. So verses six and seven reads like this, and angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper dwelling place, these he has kept in eternal restraints under darkness for the judgment of the great day. 
just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these angels, indulged in sexual perversion and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So, one long sentence with the next two examples. And the first example is the example of angels who sinned. Uh, angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper dwelling place. And this is probably, not 100% certain, but it's probably an allusion to the strange story in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. According to Jewish tradition, uh, represented in books like the book of First Enoch, the book of Jubilees, those angels there in Genesis 6 uh, are spiritual beings who sinned by taking on human form and having sex with human women for themselves. That's the, the, that seems to be what Genesis 6 is talking about. And certainly there was a well-known Jewish tradition uh, that was popular in Jude's day about that story, understanding it that way. And notice in the flow of this long sentence that the sin of these angels was indulging in sexual perversion. Well, that seems to be what's going on in Genesis chapter 6, 1 through 4. So it's a strange story there, but this is the way the Jews of Jude's day understood it. And it's one important way to, to read that text, probably the most likely reading of that text. The problem with these angels is they didn't keep their own domain and they abandoned their proper abode. In other words, they didn't stay to the purpose God gave them, that is their domain, their sphere of influence, in the spiritual realm, their proper abode or dwelling. So these angels crossed boundaries and did something uh, that was completely inappropriate and completely against what God intended for them in their rebellion against God. And Jude says that as a result, God has imprisoned them until the final day of judgment. So once they, they were serving in the light of God, now they suffer waiting for judgment in utter and complete darkness. That's the contrast. That's the example. And so they had all this position. They had all this status. They were created to serve God, and yet they abandoned all of that. And as a result, they now are under eternal restraints in darkness. The second example that shows up in this sentence is the example of Sodom and Gomorrah. You can read that story in Genesis chapter 19. Notice what Jude says about that in verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah. So Sodom and Gomorrah, their issue and the angel's issue are similar. They're just like each other, just like Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these, and the translators here have supplied these angels because these is pointing back to the first example. So the, the issue of Sodom and Gomorrah and the issue of the angels are similar. What's the issue? Well, they indulged in sexual perversion and went after strange flesh. In the case of the angels, it was angels going after human flesh. In the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, Jude seems to mean that the men of the city wanted to gang rape the two angels who showed up in the city and they thought were mere human, mere men. Um, and so they themselves are judged. And Jude says they're, they're judged, but not only judged, they are judged and set forth as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. What does it mean by eternal fire? 
probably because of Jude's point in using the illustration. Jude uses that phrase eternal fire here because he's using it to point forward to the final judgment. Uh, eternal judgment, eternal condemnation. And so they're exhibited in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Fire from eternity, fire from heaven, a kind of proto-example of eternal judgment. Then what Jude does in the following verse is he applies these examples by saying, the false teachers that are afflicting the churches and the Christians that Jude is writing to, well, those false teachers are like these three examples. It's the same with them. And so Jude writes in verse 8, Yet in the same way, these people also, these people are the false teachers, the ones that are stirring up trouble for Jude's original readers. So in the same way, like these examples, these false teachers, these people also, dreaming defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak abusively of angelic majesties. And so Jude lists off three sins or three charges, if you will, against the false teachers that are troubling his churches. The first is they defile the flesh. This is sinful lust, most likely referring to illicit sexual activity, but it could just be broader than that. The second a charge against them is they reject authority. They're rebellious, just like the angels, just like Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Just like the people during the Exodus, they reject authority. They're rebellious. Uh, the word for authority here is actually a little unique. It's actually a variation of the word for Lord, and hence they reject lordship. That's the idea of this word authority. So the question then becomes, well, who's lordship? Could be the church uh, lord authority, right? Church lordship. Could be civic authority, civic lordship. But probably best, in view of what Jude has already said, is it's Jesus's lordship. He's the Lord. And Jude has said that these false teachers, by turning the grace of God into sensuality, deny the master, deny Jesus. And so that's probably the idea here. They reject Jesus's lordship, and they refuse to submit to him as king and lord. And then the third accusation here against them is that they speak abusively of angelic majesties. Just as in 2 Peter, the word translated angelic majesties literally is glories, which likely refers to high-ranking spiritual beings. In fact, the following verse, verse 9, where Jude gives an example uh, of this sort of thing, well, it seems to be an illustration of high-ranking spiritual beings. So, they speak against high-ranking spiritual beings, and the word translated speak against or speak abusively of is literally blasphemous, blasphemous. Me. And that word's going to show up several times in the next few verses. It's going to hold this whole little mini section together here in verses 8 and 9. And so they blaspheme high-ranking spiritual beings. And what drives all of this, according to the sentence here in verse 8, is dreaming. Well, what does Jude mean by dreaming? Well, the only other place this particular word that's translated dreaming here is used in the New Testament is Acts chapter 2. And there in Acts 2, it refers to prophetic dreams. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it uses the same word to describe false prophets who claim to see dreams. So that seems to be the idea here. These teachers are being linked with false prophets 
who claim visionary experiences, but then do these three things. They have these, they defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme high-ranking spiritual beings. And so their life and their lifestyle negates their prophetic claim. That's the idea. And so they claim to see dreams and have spiritual experiences and have visions from God, but then just watch the way they live and their life negates that claim. Then James continues his thought in verse 9 about blaspheming spiritual beings. He, he continues that thought by giving an example that shows these people are arrogant in doing that. The example is the example of Michael and the devil and the body of Moses. It's a strange example, but let's read it, and then we'll talk about what James is getting at. He says, but Michael... The archangel, notice that, ruling angel, high-ranking spiritual angel. But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him an abusive judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Michael is one of the archangels mentioned in the Bible. Daniel chapter 12 verse 1 pictures him as a special guardian angel guarding the nation of Israel. And this particular illustration that Jude uses here doesn't come from the Old Testament. It comes from an ancient Jewish source that was popular in Jude's day, sort of like a, you know, an extra spiritual book, a theology book, or another devotional type book. It was called the Assumption of Moses. And in the story recorded in the Assumption of Moses, Satan, the devil, attempted to lay claim to Moses' body because Moses had killed the Egyptian, and obviously, therefore, Moses was a murderer, so the devil should get claim to his body. Jude doesn't get lost in the weeds of the story as it's told in that uh, that that popular Jewish book. Rather, he uses the story to illustrate how arrogant and irreverent the false teachers are. And the way Jude does that is he makes this point that Michael, the archangel, a ruling angel, a high-ranking angel, not even Michael rebuked the devil. Instead, he called upon the Lord to do it. And so if an, if an archangel like Michael won't rebuke the devil... Surely these people, these false teachers, shouldn't be blaspheming high-ranking spiritual beings, as Jude accused them of in verse 8. So James then goes on to say that these people, these false teachers, disparage things or blaspheme things that they don't even really understand. So verse 10 says, but these people, that is the false teachers, disparage all the things they do not understand and all all the things that they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. So these people, in contrast to Michael, uh, these people, and though they claim so much for themselves, they claim to have spiritual dreams and all of that, they claim to be so spiritual, really understand things more than what um, the, you know these people that Jude is writing to understand. Jude said, though they claim all this, they actually don't understand the things that they disparage. And that word disparage is from blasphemos again, the word blasphemy. Verse 8 used that word. Verse 9 used that word. And here uses that word. And interestingly enough, each time it's translated differently, which just is a little frustrating because it doesn't help us see the connection of thought through these three verses, 8, 9, and 10. Verse 8, the verb is translated speak 
speak abusively. Verse 9, it's a noun or an adjective, and it's translated as abusive. And then here, it's a verb, and really it just restates the problem noted in verse 8, but it's translated disparage instead of speak abusively or blaspheme. Uh, it's all the same idea. These people claim to know so much and to be so spiritual, but they speak against things that they don't really understand. Now, the second half of the verse says, all the things that they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. And this phrase is a little awkward or challenging just because it hangs there at the end of the sentence without any clear connection to the first half of the sentence. But what it's getting at is that the only things these people really know, they claim so much, they claim to know so much, right? They claim to have dreams uh, and all of that. But the only things they really know are their base instincts, probably meaning their physical appetites. That's all they really know are their physical appetites. That's what really drives them. And it's those very things that ruin them. So they claim to be spiritual and know so much about spiritual things, but really all they know are their animal-like instincts. From here then, Jude gives a series of examples and word pictures to illustrate just how destructive these false teachers really are. First, he quickly rattles off three Old Testament examples of what they're like. Look at verse 11. He says, Woe to them, for they've gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have given themselves up to the heir of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. And so, Jude just quickly rattles off these three Old Testament examples. So the first one is the example of Cain. You can read that in Genesis chapter 4. Cain, in his selfish and selfishness and pride, murdered his brother. In fact, an ancient Jewish targum, that is a commentary on Cain, describes Cain as saying, oh, there's no judgment, there's no world to come, there's no reward for being righteous, so I'm going to live however I want. And Jude seems to believe that's what really lies behind a lot of these uh, false ideas from these false teachers. So the example of Cain. The next one he rattles off is the, the error of Balaam. And you can read Balaam's story in Numbers 22 through 24 and Numbers 31. You got to get Numbers 31 um, in order to understand what really is the problem of Balaam. And the problem is, notice, for pay. That is, in order to get money, Balaam did what he did, and so do these false teachers. And that story of Balaam is interesting because he was paid to curse Israel by a king who was opposed to Israel. And Balaam wanted the money, so he took the money and he's going to curse Israel. But God wouldn't let him curse Israel. And so Balaam kept blessing Israel instead. Finally, this is where chapter 31 comes in. Balaam gave Balak, the opposing king, some advice. And he said, here's what you should do. And he had the Midianite women seduce the men of Israel, which led to all sorts of infidelity and disaster. Here's the way Numbers 31 puts it in verse 16. The, they were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and enticed the Israelites to be unfaithful to the Lord in the Peor incident so that a plague struck the Lord's people. So the heir of Balaam is harming God's people for the sake of money. And Jude is saying that's exactly what the false teachers are doing. And then the third example that Jude gives is Korah. And you could read this account in Numbers chapter 16. Um, they, the sons of Korah, rebelled against Moses and Aaron, and they led others astray. And so, too, Jude says that these false teachers are doing the same thing. They are 
leading a rebellion against God and his leaders, the apostles, and they lead people astray. And guess what? Just like the sons of Korah perished, well, these false teachers will perish as well. Then Jude gives a series of word pictures that describe how dangerous and useless their teaching and their way of life is. Verse 12, Jude writes, These are the ones who are hidden reefs in your love feast when they feast with you without fear. Hidden reefs were a sailor's nightmare, right? Like you, you couldn't see these reefs. All of a sudden, now your ship is stuck in this reef and now your ship is being battered by the waves and being destroyed. And Jude says these false teachers are like hidden reefs in your love feast. That is, when the church gathered together and they ate their meal together and we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, these false teachers, as James said up front, have crept in unnoticed. And so they're hidden amongst you and they're tripping people up and destroying people just like a hidden reef does in the waves. Next, Jude says, they are like shepherds caring only for themselves. That is literally shepherding themselves. So really, they, they aren't interested in caring for the sheep. And this really follows up the eating together image by saying these people only really care about their own interest, making sure they themselves are cared for. Jude then says they are clouds without water carried along by the winds. They promise much, but they give nothing. They are empty and valueless. We might say they're full of hot air. Jude goes on and says they are autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. Autumn was the harvest season in the Middle East. It's the season for gathering olives from the trees or gathering other fruit from other fruit trees. It was a time to be celebrating all that God had provided and all that the farmer had worked for. A whole season of growth, in other words. And these false teachers, they've got nothing to show for it. They're doubly dead. And that's probably because they are now uprooted, twice dead. They had no fruit. So they're dead in that sense. And then they're dug up and uprooted and gotten rid of. They're dead again, doubly dead. And so they're autumn trees without fruit. They are wild waves of the sea churning up their own shameful deeds like dirty foam. And the idea is that the lives of these ungodly false teachers resemble raging tides. They're out of control and all they do is litter the shore with refuse. That's the idea. They are wandering stars for whom the gloom of darkness has been reserved forever. This phrase, wandering stars, literally is the word, the English word planet comes from, planetai, and it means a wanderer. And it likely refers to planets, not stars, because planetary movement seemed so unpredictable to the ancients. They just hadn't quite figured out how they worked. So they would appear for a bit lit up, and then all of a sudden they would go dark, and no one quite knew why. And that's the idea of this gloom of darkness here reserved forever. So the ultimate fate of these false teachers is darkness, indeed the gloom of darkness. Then in the next verse, Jude quotes another popular Jewish book, the book of First Enoch, that spoke about how God would judge all the ungodly. Verse 14 and 15 reads like this. It was also about these people that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord has come with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way. 
and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. This is from 1 Enoch chapter 1, verse 9. It's not a biblical book, and it wasn't viewed as scripture by first century Jews, but it was popular and read. So Jude quotes a well-known book to support his point like preachers often do. And in the Old Testament, Enoch was the descendant of Seth, and he is described as one who walked with God. And here in this quote from 1 Enoch, we have a description of judgment. Notice how the Lord comes with many thousands of his holy ones. In other words, it refers to angels that join God when he comes to judge the world. And the specific focus here is the conviction of the ungodly. I'm sure you heard the repetition of the word ungodly as we read this passage. God is coming with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all the ungodly people. And the point is, is that False teachers, like those who are troubling Jude's original readers, those are the ones uh, that are going to be judged by God for their ungodliness. Then Jude goes on in verse 16 to give one final description of these false teachers who are destined for judgment. Jude writes, These are grumblers finding fault, following after their own lust. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. And so Jude describes them as grumblers. The word means those who murmur behind the scenes, stirring people up against others, right? They're, they're kind of in the background. Do you really think that? That's not really what that means. And they're stirring up trouble. That's the idea. It's to grumble against others. In the Septuagint, it's used of the Israelites in the wilderness during the Exodus who grumble against God and who grumble against Moses. So these are grumblers. They're murmurs, stirring up dissension and trouble in in the background, finding fault, Jude says. And that seems to mean that they are never satisfied. They are never happy. In Greek literature, this particular word refers to some who always find something to complain about. They don't like what they have when they get it. Uh, they complain about something else, right? They're always dissatisfied. That's the idea of finding fault. So you get people, this picture of people murmuring in the background, never satisfied, always stirring up trouble, always complaining. Uh, always chasing after their own desires, Jude says. Uh, they have no self-control, no sense of duty or honor or responsibility. It's just a matter of getting more and more and more of whatever they want. And then they flatter others to get ahead, to get what they want. Not a pretty picture of these false teachers, but that's the way Jude describes them. And with that, the, the large body of the letter of Jude is over. Jude has described and called out these false teachers for his original audience and for us. And so before we leave this section, let's just take a second and offer a couple reflections on what Jude has said. The first reflection is something we, I think, in our day and age need to make sure we don't minimize or forget, and that is the reality of false teaching and of ungodly influencers. Uh, false teachers didn't only exist in Jude's day. They have been an ever-present threat to God's people throughout history. There are different types, but we should pay attention to what Jude has said about them so that we can at least recognize uh, some of the tendencies of false teachers. They claim the name of Jesus. They participate in the love feast. That is, they participate in church. They say spiritual th sounding things and claim to really know how spiritual things work. But 
They live immoral lives. They are greedy and self-serving. Um, they are destructive and empty and valueless. And so just because somebody claims to really know spiritual things, just because they go to church and they say spiritual sounding things, doesn't mean that they're actually teaching the truth. And we need to be aware of that. And we need to be willing to look at people's lives in total. And if we see an immoral, greedy, godless life, well, we probably have a, a problem here with this person and their teaching. And so we must know the truth. We must help new and young believers know the truth so that we can protect people from foolish, false ideas. The second reflection I think that is worth offering out of this section is just the reality of judgment. There is a day of accountability. There is a day of judgment. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, people will be held accountable for their behavior and be repaid for how they live their lives. And those of us who follow Jesus, we need to take that seriously, that there is a final day, a day of judgment, when God's going to sort out really who is his people, who were faithful to him, and who were not.